here last week. I'm going to encourage you to you can go online to kingsvillebaptist.org or you can uh, give us a holler up here. We'll get you a CD and it'll kind of introduce you to what we covered last week and the importance of it. And I've got an illustration coming up uh, in a little while that um, maybe will help you connect last week with this week and with the importance of it. But the central issue that we covered was the idea that there are two basic approaches to God's Word. Uh, One is to feel like or set oneself as sort of the judge of God's Word. Kind of with the idea that you and I have the authority that we can approach the Word in, in the same way that you approach a visit to Piccadilly Cafeteria. You can kind of step back, look at what all's offered, and then pick some things that appeal to you and leave some things off that don't appeal to you. Now, when I visit Piccadilly, I don't do that a lot. Um, I, I have some other places that I have real food issues with that I go to um, and battle with all the time. Piccadilly's not one of those, but if you can imagine the way Piccadilly's kind of set up with this buffet, you kind of get the same thing at our former uh, place here, Ryan's, and at Golden Corral. You kind of can approach it and say, okay, there, there's all this here, and I can, I can pick what I like from it. Um, and so when I go to places like Piccadilly and they have this great big uh, container of Brussels sprouts, I can promise you I have no problem passing over that. Uh, I detest them. I've, I've had people say, oh, no, you hadn't had my Brussels sprouts. Well, then I, then I try theirs, and the detestability issue just gets higher because now my friends are harming me. And so, um, and, and so this is a, something we kind of work through when I... So if I come to eat at your house, there's only a few things I'll ever say I don't want. Brussels sprouts, uh, no. Let's just, let's just go ahead and love one another. <laughs> um, but the things we're talking about today are kind of the theological Brussels sprouts of the Bible, but you can't do the Bible Piccadilly thing. So if you come to the Bible with kind of a Piccadilly attitude and pick and choose, I want to tell you, it's really likely that you're not a Christian. I'm so scared to say something like that. But the Bible says that the Spirit of God does a work in the sons of God that draw the, the, the sons, the daughters, the children of God, that draw them to the Word of God. And so I worry deeply when people approach the Bible that way. And so we talked about a church uh, that, that approaches the Bible that way and the, the errors that have come as a result. There's another way to approach the Bible, and that is to approach the Bible as the inerrant, absolutely perfect word of the living God that comes to us and judges us. So really, there's two different views. I, I judge the Bible like I judge a Piccadilly smorgasbord and I pick and choose what I like or I come to the Bible and it judges me and I take it all as the living word, perfect word of God to me. And I have to grapple with every aspect of it and work through it. And so last week we we talked about that and it led up and and Joe, if you'll just scroll all the way down to the very beginning of our outline today, a recipe for disaster. I'm going to tell you a quick recipe for disaster. My cousin Sonny and I, uh, when we were kids, we, we, we hung out together a lot. And, and one day, uh, we had this great patch of woods behind my house when I was growing up. It was literally just miles and miles of uh, unspoiled old woods. And we played back there all the time. And one day, my cousin got hold of this bicycle. And uh, I really, to this day, don't know where it came from. It could have been one of my brother's bicycles. And it was the old kind of bicycle that had the handlebars that kind of bend and come up like that. Y'all go back far enough for that? You know, my bike's different now. I've got a road bike and a mountain bike, and they don't have handlebars that come up like that. So I had these handlebars like this. And uh, my cousin Sonny was a couple of years older than me. And 
we got hold of this bike and those handlebars were loose. And literally they were kind of like this. They were falling down. And so if Sonny didn't hold the handlebars up, if he let go, the handlebars would just fall down. Well, he sat me. I've always been little. Okay, so this isn't new. And so he sat me in the crook of that. So I'm sitting on those handlebars, okay? You get in the picture. This was a recipe for disaster, okay? And Sonny's got the handlebars, and my weight's on them now, and I'm holding on to them, and we're riding through these woods, uh, and there's not a lot of good trails in it. And in these woods, there was this great big, what we called a ditch, that separated some old properties back there. And, uh, and that ditch was fairly deep. It was probably six feet deep. And uh, had a little bluff bank on each side where the water had eroded over time and worn through there. And, and so we all played back there. And so I'm sitting in the crook of this bicycle. Sonny's got these handlebars. My weight's on it now. We're just pedaling along and just having a great recipe for disaster, crazy time. And, and, and I get a little scared and start putting a little more pressure on those handlebars. And Sonny's trying to hold them up. And finally, I push them down. And the handlebars are down here. And we're headed for the ditch. All right. And I have no idea what was up with the brakes. I don't I, that's not even in my memory. We go straight into the ditch. But here's the catch. There was a property line marker, a three inch iron pipe. Right in the middle of the ditch, and I centered it right here. And if you get the light right, you can still see this crescent shaped place on my head. It's and I mean, I popped that thing and it rang my bell pretty good and I climbed out of the ditch and all I could see was my cousin Sonny just standing there going because blood you know when you injure your head it's not like just a little tree it's just like and so it's running down my face it's running on my shirt and all I can remember Sonny saying is I need to take you to your mom so it's a pretty good ways I would say it was a good hundred 50 yards from my house back to that ditch, maybe 200 yards. And so we walk all that way, and that blood's running, and Sonny's just hes a little scared. We walk to my front door, knock on the door. As Sonny very polite opens the door, my mom walks to the door, and there I am. So if you're a mom, you're playing this in your mind going, I mean, there's blood everywhere. I might as well cut my head off at that point because there's just blood everywhere. My mom's pretty cool, so she handled it well. She didn't make me more scared. And I ended up at the doctor's office getting all that sewn up and got a good number of stitches there. I don't remember how many it was. I was pretty young at the time. But look, it was a recipe for disaster from the start. There were several things wrong at the very beginning. And we set ourselves on a trajectory in a direction that nothing good was going to come out of it. What Paul is dealing with in this church in 1 Corinthians 5 is a church that has a recipe for disaster. No good can come from what's going on. Let's review what we did last week. First, a recipe for disaster. It had three components. We mentioned them at the end of the service last week. A dangerous actuality. Notice there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it says, It is actually reported. So what Paul is saying, this is a truthful report. It's actually occurring. It's not an innuendo. It's not a rumor. This is actually happening. And it's a dangerous actuality because this sin is in the church. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, these pagan people, someone has his father's wife. Now, that means that he had a stepmom and he entered a relationship with her that was both marital and, uh, and, and sexual. And he followed through with this in, in, in the church. And so it was very serious. It was bad. Uh, even the Gentiles frowned on this, this kind of behavior. Now, something happened. We mentioned letter B last week. And you have become arrogant. Now, this is a deceptive attitude. Somehow this guy had some kind of power in the church, either financial or influential or societal standing that caused the church to, rather than confront him and risk losing this person of standing and causing kind of a stink in the church, 
they applauded and embraced him because they didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable or sinful or rejected or any of those things. And so they, they, they didn't just not deal with it, they embraced it. And they became arrogant about it. And, and, and kind of like, well, we're just the loving church and we just want to do the loving thing. And we're just the, we're just the church that kind of embraces you and it doesn't really matter at all what you do. We're just going to embrace you. And, and so it got kind of cloudy about their identity as a body of believers and what they actually believed, and what they clung to. And so this deceptive attitude began to take root and they they became arrogant, it says, and have not mourned instead. This was a this was a scary thing. One of the marks of true belief is mourning over sin. When you read the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. When you reflect back on the work of Ezra when he came into Israel in the reconstruction and he saw the, the sinful condition of the people, the Bible says the guy just laid down and cried for days. He mourned. And what had happened is rather than valuing the opinion of God on these issues of sin, the church began to value the opinions of humans. And rather than weeping over it, they got puffed up about it and arrogant and prideful about it. And then a third thing happened, a deadly action occurred, and that deadly action was the inaction. You know, if this past two weeks ago, I was coming into uh, Alexandria on the Pineville Expressway, 167. And that last bridge, when you cross over the Red River, and then the road splits three ways. The left lane goes south on 49, kind of the middle goes north on 49. And, but over on the right, it just drops you right down into Alexandria. You know where I'm talking about? So I'm dropping off there. I'm headed to the hospital to visit someone, and I'm, I'm rolling down that ramp, and a guy is coming up the ramp toward me. All right? So I get on the horn. <laughs> And I get my hand out the window, I'm going. Finally wave the guy down, and I can tell by the way he navigates his car that he's somehow impaired. And so I grabbed my phone up, I punched in 911, I said, give me Alexandria Police Department. They connect me to Alexandria Police Department. I got right behind this guy, and I said, look, there is an impaired guy. He was coming up the exit ramp, using it as an entrance ramp onto 167. I said, the guy's impaired. Now, what would you have thought of me if I'd have just let the guy go? If he's coming up the ramp and I said, hmm, he ain't going to hit me, what would you think of me? Well, I'd hope you'd say, Bart, you're an idiot. Because my interest had to be more than just my own interest. If my interest was just my interest, I could say, glad he didn't hit me. But my interest had to be bigger than that. I thought, what about all these people on the highway? What about this guy? What are... And so I'm going to track this guy down. I don't care what happens. I'm going to stay with him until the police get to him. I didn't, the police didn't catch up with him until he meandered all the way through town. We ended up over at Tractor Supply over near 28 West. We meandered all through town before APD finally caught up with us. I kept giving them locations, you know, through the dispatcher. And they're sending their motorcycles and their cars. And finally, uh, they converge on us over there right by Tractor Supply. And they... Say, stay on the phone a minute. We want to talk to you. Tell us what we saw and everything. And what it was, it was a senior adult who had gotten, he was completely lost. He had no idea where he, where he was. And so had we just let him go, who knows if he killed himself, killed others. There's no telling what have happened. There had to be some kind of compassion that goes outside of my own interests. That's what's happening here. These people are making a deadly action because they're only worried about their own interests. So they say, we'll just let this guy be. It's not hurting me. It's 
not going to hurt us to put up with this. God's got power. God's got influence. God's got money. We don't need any trouble in the church. We don't need to rock the boat. Things are going good. And the truth is, is what we're saying is, I don't care as long as it's not messing with me. That's deadly to the church. And so, it's a recipe for disaster. Now, so let's kind of clarify why Paul gives us a good recipe and compares it to a bad recipe. So Paul's going to give us a recipe for bread in a minute. And that recipe is going to be, their ingredients should be in bread. They're well known. He doesn't list them. But then there are some ingredients that in the kind of bread you're supposed to be eating that shouldn't be in that. But he's going to tell us the reasons for that first. Why should we act differently than this church did? This is a really good question. We should really be saying, why why should we even... Look, dude, I come to church. I give my tithe. I sit in my pew. I go to Sunday school. I'm pretty good. Why should I bother? This guy over here, this gal over here, this person here. Why should that even bother me? What in the world they're doing? If that's your attitude, you are so wrong. And church is not church, if that's our attitude. It's a club. And I'm telling you, I do not have time for clubs. And neither do you. If you are not deeply concerned about the souls that God has entrusted us here, and the souls of those lost that God will bring our way, then there is something fundamentally broken in your understanding of the gospel. And so Paul says, here's the reasons I'm going to give you directions. First, go with me, Joe. The reasons for directions. First, the salvation of a human being. Look at what Paul says. He says in verse 2, You've become arrogant. You've not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. Immediately you think, well, that's not good. You just punt people out of your church. Is that what y'all are about, just punting people? Well, if you don't track with this whole story, you're going to think that's what it is because you're going to go back to the stories you heard about people getting churched. How many of you have heard a story about people getting churched? Raise it up, raise it up, raise it up. Almost everybody who's doing that has a little bit of age on them. People got churched back in the day for watching football on Sundays. Now, that's just ridiculous. But it really messed up our view of how we deal with sinful behavior. They got churched because they didn't do some specific traditional thing that had no biblical foundation for being brought up to the level of a kind of confrontation that would cause somebody to be put out of the church. And so... The salvation of a human being. Look at how Paul develops this. Verse 8. Excuse me. Verse 3. For I on my part... I'm not wearing my glasses. Okay. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved. Paul says, why do you want people in church? Is it so they can pay tithes and you can expand your operation? Is it so you can have numbers and and, and float those at the convention? Is it so your reports can look good? Is it so you can talk to your neighbors and say, oh, we're really growing over here? Why? Paul says, why? Why do you want people in church? Here's why Paul wants them. That they may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul, his interest in people being in church is singular. It's not clouded by pride. It's not shrouded in worldly thinking. He's about one thing. The eternal state of human beings. Paul has had the privilege of peeking over the rim of heaven. And somehow I believe he had 
smelled the sense of hell too. Nobody had the passion for the gospel like he did other than Jesus himself. And that passion for the gospel said, this is what's at stake. The salvation of a human being. And your interaction with this guy in putting him out is not about pride. It's not about his position. It's not about all that stuff. It's about one thing. It's, a, it's, it's about his soul. He deals with it. Now you say, wait a minute. He, 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 the guy said he's a Christian. He's in the church. He, he, he has some standing there. Are you saying people like lose their salvation? Mm-mm, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are indicators. There are fruits. There are what we could call identifiers of a person's relationship with God. Now, I want to take you to those for a second. And I want to help you work through those so that we don't mess up here because we could mess up here. We could get to this place and really go shipwreck as a church. Here's a guy who is committing... Immorality. He's committing it. He's doing so strong-headedly, stiff-neckedly, and unrepentantly. Guys walking headlong into sin. Now, I want to make a make a comparison here. I want you to get two head, two words in your head real quick. Um, <clears throat> I want you to get the word is, and I want you to get the word were. Is, were. You could do is, was, but Paul does is, were. Paul is going to talk about immorality, and he's going to use the word is. It's a present active word. It means yesterday it was going on, today it's going on, looks like tomorrow it's still going to be going on because it's unrepentant, unimpeded, unchanged. And so, come down to verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, so-called Christian, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. There's an emphasis here on is, being one. This is very important in Paul's handling of an issue of discipline in the church. Come over to the second text that Steve read this morning in chapter 6. Verse 9. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not... These are is people. These are is. All of the words that are going to come after this are what are are called identifiers. They are statements of is. Is. Statements of being, statements of doing that are active. So he's ising now. He says, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. This is the key point in all of Paul's teaching here. It is easy to be deceived about these things. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators. That's people who commit acts of sexuality 
outside of the bonds of marriage while not yet breaking any marital bonds. In other words, it doesn't include a married person. It means an unmarried person, premarital activity, those kind of things that we have lots of words for. I'm trying to be particularly careful in this today. I know, I know we have young ones in us, so I'm going to be real careful here. But he says, fornicators or idolaters, adulterers, that's when you're breaking the bonds of marriage through casting somebody off and taking somebody else on. Uh, nor effeminate, believe it or not, that was early trans, transvestism or a kind of transgenderism where men dress themselves up as women. Nor homosexuals, this is, you know, you know what that means, nor thieves, people steal stuff, nor covetous, those who run their lives on the desire for things of others. Nor drunkards, that one's pretty easy. Nor revilers, or revilers a person who spends their time putting other people down. Nor swindlers, that's ripping people off. None of those shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I told you to do the is-were thing, verse 11, and such were some of you. No matter how screwed up your life, no matter broken your life, no matter how sinful your life, you can be a word. The gospel is the power of God to take is's and make words out of them. But those who claim the gospel and still are is's, Paul says it is an invalid claim. This is serious. And this is why Paul says you've got to face down the invalid claims. Call them out and work through it with them. Paul's interested in their salvation. He's interested in their souls. And when we let people go on in isism and we don't care, that means we do not care about their soul. That is a serious thing to say about a church. It is a serious thing to say about an individual. To say that we do not care about their soul. Paul is raising that to the surface and he's making it his point. I have decided to turn such a one over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, Paul said there's just two realms in the world. There's in Christ Jesus and there's in Satan's realm. That's it. You're either in Christ Jesus or you're in Satan's realm. So to put somebody out into, to turn them over to Satan is to put them out of the church and put them back in that realm that's under the rule and the reign of Satan to put them out there and say, okay, let God work on them out there. He's certainly not doing it in here. And so he turns it over to the destruction of their flesh. That means that God will go to work on them out in that realm to try to break them down to the point where they'll see the gospel and repent and return. That's the goal. And so the reasons for the directions first are the salvation of a human being. I could camp on that forever, but I don't have time. The sanctification of the church is the second reason. Paul says something very powerful here. Look in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Here's what's the deal. Every one of us, even at our best as Christians, even at our best as saved people, still live in the flesh. We occupy it. We live in it every day. I occupy a life, I walk in the flesh. I can't escape my body, its desires, and my messed up mind. I can't. If I could broadcast my mind to you for ten minutes, you would run screaming to your house. My mind is like a sack of cats. When when I'm preaching to you, I'm having to battle off stuff. I have like three things running at the same time in the middle of a sermon. First, I got the sermon, which is sometimes just like it's all over the place, ADHD city. Then in my mind, I've got my regular ADHD that's saying, 
hey, guys, are you noticing that some people here, like, are dressed different? And who are they? And I don't think they like you. And remember last week when you were riding your bicycle and there was an ant on the road in front of you? That's going on in my head. And then back there behind that is me going, God, if I do not have your help to get through this, I am just going to just flame out today. So now if you need to go, you can go. All right? Just go on to the house. Um, Because we occupy the flesh, there is something in our flesh that's always looking for a way to sin. Always. Paul calls it in Romans 7, there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is right is there, but the carrying it out is not. I find this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. So I got this thing going on, and it's always looking for affirmation to sin. And the people that I will look to is the church. And if the church will give me a little bit of leaven and a little bit of permission, it'll infect me. And if I'll give you a little bit of leaven and a little bit of permission, it'll infect you. I can't tell you the number of times that people have piled into my office and sat down and plopped down and essentially asked my permission to sin. I can't tell you. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a mealy-mouthed preacher who would say, Oh, I understand it's okay. Not, I understand, but here's the gospel. And so we are always functioning as a collective, one loaf, and we're always in our flesh looking for a way to permissively sin. And so if one person in the church starts handing out permission, especially if it's a person of influence like in this one, then other people say, it's okay with them, okay with the church, let's just go ahead. And it starts spreading through the whole. And Paul says, a little leaven, you know what leaven is, yeast, just takes a little bit of yeast to kind of infect the whole loaf of dough. And so he says, we're looking for that. We're also looking for affinity. We're looking for somebody with the same struggle who will permissively allow us to share not the struggle toward righteousness together, but the struggle in unrighteousness together. That's why occasionally Christians will secretly do sinful things together in little small groups. They'll gossip or they'll drink or they'll curse or they'll fornicate or they'll adulterate in little groups inside of churches looking for affinity. Looking for somebody who'll say, dude, I know what they say at church. I know what they say on Sunday, but look, it's okay with us. And that little group will get together. And we'll do things that we know we would never do up inside this building. So the sanctification of the church is the second thing he's after. Third, the celebration of our Savior. I was trying to think this through to give you a a way to help you with this. And, um, and, and so I know I'm going to end up preaching the rest of this sermon next week. Uh, at the celebration of our Savior, Paul says this. Look, look in verse um, 7. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. When we get together, who are we celebrating? Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're getting together to celebrate Jesus. That's why we're together today to celebrate Jesus. Now, you can't celebrate Jesus while willfully sinning any more than you can celebrate 90 days of freedom from meth by building a meth lab. You can't celebrate a year dry at a bar. You can't celebrate your 25th anniversary with your wife with your girlfriend. So when we pile up in here and we have willful, unrepented sin, we are taking 
and showing in the face of Jesus the very thing that He suffered, bled, and died for. And we're flaunting it as if it's not an issue. And so when we talk about doing church, we're talking about a celebration of righteousness where broken, sinful people show up to repent of the fact that we know we struggle with sin, but we will not walk in it. We will fight it. I'm going to close with a story. Um, and, and, And really, I wasn't planning on stopping here. But I think this is enough. And next Sunday, and a lot of people have told me I don't like continued sermons. Um, and, and somebody wrote me a really sweet text last week, said, I'd have stayed till one. Remember when I said last week, I said, I'd, I'd just take us till one. Somebody said, I'd stay till one. And I know you would. I love you. <laughs> and, uh, and I would have too. But it, it won't work for all of us. It won't. Okay? And, and I'm, I'm okay with that now. <laughs> Haven't always been okay with that. Um, and so, I've got to tell you a story about me. And about how I got where I am now. And some things that happened to me to get me here. And why I am not going to succumb to where the world and a lot of churches are going. Even if that costs my job and my life. I am in. When I was in seminary, I was under the influence of professors who at the time in New Orleans, in the middle of the inerrancy controversy, chose to be on the side against inerrancy. Not all of my professors, but many, especially in the Department of Biblical Studies where I was studying. And those professors, through their wisdom, that seemed good to me and their expertise that seemed good to me convinced me that the Bible was full of errors. They did. I bought it. I bought the whole deal. And I was an arrogant, stupid person. And I took my proficiency in Greek and in Hebrew. And I inflated myself with the things these men were telling me. And my little brother from my fraternity at North Georgia College, Carl Bales, a giant of a guy. He was at least 6'4". He was about three and a quarter. And I love calling him my little brother. And Carl called me from Atlanta. I was living in an apartment in New Orleans. Sherry and I had been married for several years. And I was at seminary. And I was in seminary housing. And he called me. <clears throat> he said, oh, Bart. He said, uh, I was, uh, I've been called by God to be a worship leader. And I want to come down and see you. I want to come down and see the seminary. I'm just hanging out with you. And I got a buddy of mine's going to come down. I said, man, y'all come on. I said, you can crash on my couches. Uh, and we'll just hang out and, and, and we'll have a grand time. I'll show you the city. And so Carl and his buddy came and still to this day, if I could just find that guy, the other guy, I don't know his name. And they came. And Georgia was sort of one of the hotbeds of the, inner, the inerrancy controversy. Carl and his friend had, had rightly at the time landed on the side of inerrancy of God's Word and, and, and very well landed And so I took the four or five days I had with them. And in my my arrogance, I took my Greek New Testament out 
And I took these two young men and I convinced them. I convinced them that God's Word was full of errors. And I convinced him so much so that Carl packed up and he went home and he went back to roofing and he left his calling. And in just a few years time, he fell off that roof and he died. And I wish they would take a rope and tie it around my neck and throw me in the sea because I made that little one stumble. I'm so sorry. So much is at stake here. The lives and the souls of men. And if I could get that far off in just a few months, what is going to happen to us if we do not stick to God's Word? We have no hope. I rue that day. I can't undo it. But it is a picture of a little leaven leavening the whole loaf. And I leavened Carl. And I can't unleaven him. And I can't undo it. My brothers and sisters, you're leavening some people today. And people among us are leavening. We must go after this for the good of the gospel. Because what did I do that day? I gave Carl a recipe for disaster. You and I, we're not going to do that. Because God has taught us differently. We are going to do What he says here, celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so the first step in us getting this right is dealing with the leaven of our own hearts. Is there something in you today that could poison somebody else? Let's deal with that first. Ask God to show it. Expose it. And then you with a sincere heart repent and flee. Would you bow with me? Some of you, the leaven that's in you is An indication that you are lost. That your soul is at stake. That you are not a Christian. And you need to deal with that today and bring it on out and get saved. That's my interest. That's Paul's interest. That's above all of us, Jesus' interest. And that's why you're here today. So you can hear this. And so I'm going to ask you to flee to Jesus. Others of you, you are Christians. And the reason God's working this out in you is because He's raising this stuff up in you so you can get rid of it. And you know you need to. And today's the day. Today. And so I'm going to ask you as a believer to repent. I'm asking you as an unbeliever to turn to Jesus. I'm asking us as a church to say, get rid of the leaven and serve Jesus. Would you stand? Would you come?
This morning, Fred and Liz Alexander come forward. I think it's Lisa's mom and dad, right? So Lisa and David, y'all come stand with them. They're coming uh, to join Kingswood Baptist Church by letter. We want to celebrate with them. We also celebrate with Kendall Stuckey, who's a neighbor of John and Chantel Hagues and friends with their family. He is coming this morning to uh, confess his faith in Christ. And he desires to, desires to follow Christ in baptism there, so let's celebrate with these families here. There's an Ecuador meeting at 6.30 in Big House tonight. And so uh, just a reminder for those that are interested, that's the summer vacation Bible school trip that takes place in uh, July. I think July 8th maybe is the first date on that. But that July Ecuador trip meeting at 630 tonight in Big House. Um, I, know, I believe it's, I, I believe the plans for it to be over before 8 o'clock. I think 745 is kind of the end time on that meeting. Uh, reminder about other things, I think men's fishing retreat, get with those people if you need to chat and figure out those details from announcements earlier and Life group starting back at 5 o'clock tonight. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. You are so good and gracious. Thank you for, for calling us back to yourself. Father, thank you for reminding us of your goodness. In contrast of what we've done and the guilt that we feel in our hearts, And the sin that we know is prevalent in our hearts. 